Lord God, we do pray this morning that you would open our minds uh, to these scriptures, that we might see Jesus for who he is and put our trust in him. In his name we pray. Amen. He's a changed man. I wonder if that's an expression you've ever heard. Maybe it's an expression somebody has used of you. Maybe there's a man you'd like to change. Probably not going to happen. <laughs> the comment often seems to happen uh, when you have young children, to, to guys after they've had their first uh, child. You kind of know the picture there on the floor, changing a baby's nappy, trying not to get mess on the carpet, family watching on, first time it's happened. And the mother-in-law says, he's a changed man. <laughs> yeah, we never, never, ever imagined him doing this. It's infuriating if you're in that situation. <laughs> Well, today's passage is a story of changed men. It's a story of a dramatic, once-for-all, life-transforming change. You know, the disciples were bewildered by what happened to them. They were confused and disbelieving about the stories that were filtering back that Jesus had risen from the dead, frightened by what could happen to them. But by the end of this passage, they turned into confident purposeful, obedient followers of Jesus. Men full of joy, staying continually at the temple, praising God, verse 53. How? How were these men changed? Answer. They had an encounter with the risen Jesus. You know, this passage marks the end of Luke's Gospel, but it's the passage that leads us into the new dawn. It leads us into the ministry and sacrificial witness of the Church of Christ. The disciples, they get the point. They get commissioned, they move out, and they live lives of such transparent integrity, witness, and power that they change the course of history. A history that we here now in this building today are gloriously part of. And a history that we're called to help build. So what happened? What takes them from believer to unbeliever? Jesus does three things that transform the lives of these men. I think the first is this. Jesus opened their eyes to the facts. He opened their eyes to the facts. You know, Jesus needed to open their eyes to the facts because no one was up for believing what had happened. Just think back to what we've been looking at in chapter 4. 24 over the past couple of weeks, back at the beginning of the chapter, what happens? The women, they head to the tomb on the first Easter morning. They have no hope or expectation. They're going to anoint a corpse, that's what they think, and they discover the empty tomb, the stone rolled away. What do they do? Rejoice? No. They wonder. And they need two angels to come and remind them that Jesus had told them he must be crucified. So they head back, tell the disciples about what has happened, and what is their response? If you look back at verse 11 of chapter 24, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Their account basically gets trashed. That's what happens. Then last week we saw Cleopas and a friend walking the seven-mile route from Jerusalem to Emmaus, discussing those past few traumatic days. Stranger, he comes alongside, and we're told their faces are downcast. Is there hope? 
No. Only disillusionment. They tell the stranger how Jesus was the one they had, they had hoped, was going to redeem Israel. But for them, the game is over. The final whistle has been blown. And it takes a long walk, an impromptu Bible study, and a meal to get to know this stranger. He's Jesus. So what a clear pass and his friend do. They make an about turn, head back to Jerusalem, find the disciples and the others gathered together, and they say, verse 34, look at that. It is true the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon, and they explain what has happened, verse 35. And so we find ourselves at our passage this morning. This is resurrection scene three, if you like. You kind of imagine the room, can't you, buzzing like a newsroom as they discuss, try to digest those reports filtering back of the risen Jesus. Look at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Do you get the thread of this passage, this chapter? The eyewitnesses are not gullible. They're not desperate to believe. If anything, they're cynical, so much so that as far as they're concerned, a ghost, a ghost, is a more plausible explanation than there is in Jesus. So faced with this refusal to believe, faced with this collective amnesia about all that he taught them, what does Jesus do? He lovingly, persistently, logically puts the evidence before the disciples. You know, so often people like to put faith and facts, don't they, at different ends of the spectrum. So if you don't have the facts, you have faith. Faith is what you have in the absence of facts. You know, that is not how the Bible understands faith. Faith is never a substitute for facts. They go together, and that is why Jesus goes to so much trouble here, to assure them of the fact of his resurrection. Do you see the threefold process, verification process, uh, Jesus goes through with the disciples? A court would love this. It's brilliant. Look at verse 38. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. So first, Jesus shows them his hands and feet. Why? Because the hands and feet bore the nail marks of the nails that had been driven through them as Jesus was nailed to the cross. We know that from John's Gospel. Jesus wanted them to be absolutely sure the man standing in front of them was the man who died on the cross. It is I myself, says Jesus. He's saying, look, look, it's really me. And second, Jesus invites them to touch him. He wants them to understand he has a physical resurrection body. Yeah, it appears he can pass through doors, appear in a room. We see in verse 51, he ascends to heaven, defying gravity, but he has a real physical body that could be touched. The disciples are kind of getting a bit excited at this point, aren't they? But it's a sort of confused 
excitement, verse 41. They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. I think this is the Andy Murray Wimbledon victory moment. (laughs) You know, that kind of immediate post-victory interview, and Murray says, I can't believe it. It's too good to be true. Has it really happened? Has it happened? Am I just dreaming? Do I need to pinch myself? It's not sunk in. That is where the disciples are at. Filled with joy and amazement, they cannot believe their eyes. Is it him? Is it him? It is him. It can't be true. It is. is it him? Not sure. It is. We're just dreaming, surely. So what does Jesus do? I love this bit. What does Jesus do? To dispel those lingering doubts, to end any trace of confusion, he asked for something to eat. Then verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. What a great moment. You can kind of imagine the disciples thinking, what is going to happen to this fish? Is it just going to go in and drop out? (laughs) Is it going to get digested? Of course it's not. The point is simple. Dead people don't eat. The resurrected Jesus, he eats. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm really raised from the dead, not just spiritually raised. This is not just a spiritual experience. I'm really here, bodily here, physically here. The resurrection is historically true and real. I've literally, physically, historically risen from the dead. You know, this is the miracle of all miracles, is it not? The voice that was silenced as it dramatically breathed its last from the cross, it speaks again. The body which they thought they'd seen the last of as the stone was rolled over the tomb is seen again. The hands and feet that have been pierced by nails, they walk again, they move again. It's a miracle. Death itself has been defeated. What is the point here? The point is this. Christianity is inseparable from the truth that Jesus died and rose again. You know, belief in the empty tomb is not some kind of optional extra you help yourself to from the buffet of Christian ideas. That is why Jesus goes to so much trouble to demonstrate its reality. It is fundamental. Look at my hands and feet. Touch me. Give me something to eat. The good news of God for the world begins with historical events that actually happened. But you know, more than that, the death and resurrection of Jesus, they they can't be separated from one another. The resurrection vindicates, it vindicates all that Jesus claimed about his death. Jesus claimed his death was for a reason. It was the way that men and women would be saved. So the resurrection, it points back to his death. And it says that was a right claim to have made. And it anticipates the future because the risen Jesus anticipates that all those that trust in him will be raised to new life. It heralds God's new creation future. Isn't that amazing? So the resurrection stands bang at the centre of the Christian faith. It looks back at the cross and it looks forward in anticipation of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of all believers. How can we be sure of the resurrection? Because of the evidence, because of the eyewitnesses. 
Jesus says to these men, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. They've been witnesses of these events. Now they will witness to them. You know, the good news of Jesus is rooted in the facts of history. Don't ever dodge the facts. Don't be ashamed of the facts. Don't water them down. Don't doubt them. We don't follow a dead leader. We don't call other people to follow a dead leader. Jesus is alive and it changes everything. So Jesus opens their eyes to the facts. Second, Jesus opens their minds to the scriptures. Opens their mind to the scriptures. So Jesus has shown the disciples the reality of the resurrection, the miracle of all miracles. And it's all the disciples need. So what do they do? They head straight out into the streets of Jerusalem and they spread the word. Except they don't, do they? That's not what they do. What does Jesus do? He gives them a Bible study. He wants to take them deeper. He wants to tie his death and resurrection to the web of explanation that is the Old Testament. He wants them to understand what do these events mean. Let me tell you what they mean. Do you remember this is exactly what Jesus did with Cleopas and his friend back in verse 26? Here is Jesus doing the same again with the disciples. Look at verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is saying what, that what happened to him in his death and resurrection was what he himself had said would happen. And it was what scripture had foretold. You know, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, they're the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. What is the Old Testament uh, to us today? So Jesus is saying that the Old Testament, the whole thing, it is about me. Rightly understood, these scriptures are all about Jesus and specifically the events of his death and resurrection. And Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and shows the disciples there is this web of explanation which makes sense of his death and resurrection. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. I guess many of us will have been involved in Bible studies at some point, often quite regularly. Some good, some not so good, let's be honest. But just imagine how scintillating this Bible study from Jesus must have been. How great it must have been as he showed himself to be the Christ. We don't know what passages he opened up. It could have been anything from the Old Testament. Perhaps, perhaps Jesus took them to the account of the Passover, showing them how God's people are rescued from God's judgment because the blood of a lamb was daubed on the lintel of the door. And Jesus would have said, that's me. I am that Passover lamb. 
Perhaps he would have taken them to the accounts of the sacrifices in the temple when a goat had hands laid on it to symbolize a transfer of sins and was then sent out into the wilderness, a scapegoat that meant people could come into a relationship with a holy God. And Jesus would have said, that's me. I am the scapegoat. Maybe he would have said, do you remember the story of Jonah? You know, Jonah and the whale. The guy who swallowed by a whale. How long was Jonah in the belly of the whale? Three days, three nights, before spat out onto a beach like someone risen from the dead. Do you get it? That was a foreshadowing of what happened to me. Perhaps he went and reminded them of the words of the great prophet Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And what would Jesus have said? That's me. I was pierced and crushed in your place. These wounds I bear and will bear eternally in heaven as the lamb that was slain were so you could be healed. I am that suffering servant. I suffered for you. Perhaps he would have taken them to Isaiah's prophecy of a king with unrivaled power and authority. The king who would reign on David's throne forever, ruling it with justice and righteousness. Jesus would have said, I am that king. I am the Christ. I'm God's anointed, authoritative ruler and king of the whole universe. What a Bible study that must have been. Amazing. You know, if we want to go deeper with Jesus, if we want a more dynamic relationship with God, to know more of the astonishing events and meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus, it is all here in our Bibles. We need to have them open. So often they're up there, aren't they, on shelves gathering dust. That is crazy. The keenness we perhaps once had has faded. Let's not miss out. Let's allow God to enlighten us, deepen our faith, challenge us, transform us. My eldest daughter, Isabel, is very into Disney stuff at the moment, specifically Disney princess stuff. You know, the story Cinderella, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, etc. And the basic template for a Disney princess story is this. Princess in trouble or trapped needs to be rescued. Rescued by a prince or other fine man. They get married, find complete fulfillment, live happily ever after, sunset credits. That's the kind kind of pattern of a Disney story. I've got a lot of the stuff in my house. Uh... But I think these kind of stories embody and feed an idea that so many of us struggle to shake off in adult life. You know, the idea that we just need to find this one great person who will come into our lives, who will love us, complete us, make our life right. It's an idea that in times of our lives can consume so much of our energy, our focus, our fantasies but it's an idea that will lead only to disappointment. There's not a single human being who can bear the weight of those expectations. You know, we may think we've met that person, 
only to find in the end they don't really satisfy in quite the way that we'd hoped. Or we don't ever find that person and it becomes a source of deep pain, sadness, loneliness. Except there is one such person, Jesus Christ. You know, without, without Jesus, life lacks meaning. It seems insecure. Love never quite seems to live up to its reputation. But as we come to Jesus, the one about whom the whole Old Testament is written, what do we discover? We discover he died for me. He rose for me. He offers me new life and a certain hope. He loves us. He's alive today and he offers us meaning, purpose, security and hope. Jesus is that love object, if you like, we've always been looking for. And he longs to know us. Do you know him? How do we turn to Jesus? Look at verse 47. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance, that is the demand of the risen Jesus. Repentance means to change your mind, to turn around. It means to turn from living as if we want to please ourselves without any reference to Jesus, using and abusing all that he has given us. And instead, we turn to acknowledge Jesus as the risen and ascended Lord of this world, and we submit to him. And what happens if we repent? As we turn to Jesus, we don't find him there angry, scowling at us, disappointed. Instead, amazingly, we turn and find Jesus with his arms outstretched, bearing the nail marks of the cross to welcome us home. We're forgiven. We receive God's gracious and undeserved mercy for all our sins. The ones we know about, the ones we don't. The ones that are past, the ones that are future. Those things, those skeletons in the cupboard, we'd never want another person to know about. If we turn to Christ, we're forgiven all these things. That is what makes sense of the opening words of Jesus in verse 36. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. As we repent, we find forgiveness and peace with God. And Jesus says, welcome home, friends. Repentance is the demand of Jesus. Forgiveness is the offer of Jesus. Where do you stand Wonderfully, many of us here this morning know what it is to be at peace with God, but some of us may not yet have turned to Jesus. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you've been thinking about Jesus for a while, mulling these things over. What does it all mean? Can I say, don't feel disqualified or discouraged if your process of understanding has been slow, if you haven't had that kind of dramatic moment of conversion. The disciples were very slow. So you're in good company. The question is, will you come to faith in the end in the risen Jesus? But can I also say this? Don't don't keep delaying. There will come a day when it will be too late. The question is, will you repent? 
If you do, you find the risen Lord Jesus offering forgiveness, a fresh start, a new life, and a certain hope of eternal life. It is amazing. So Jesus opens their eyes to the facts. He opens their minds to the scriptures. And finally, very briefly, he opens their mouths to proclaim. He opens their mouths to proclaim. Look at verse 48. Jesus says to the disciples, You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The disciples are witnesses of the fact of the resurrection. Jesus has opened their eyes. They're witnesses of the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has opened their minds. And as witnesses, there follows a command, an empowerment. Do you see that? Jesus commands them to go out into the world, shaped by all they've witnessed. They're sent out to witness to all they've seen and heard. And they are to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins, starting in the place where they're standing right now, where all these events happen in Jerusalem. But they can't do it by themselves. They're to wait until they've been empowered until God's Spirit comes on them, equipping them for the task. And we only have to read on in the book of Acts, Luke's sequel, uh, to see the sending of the Spirit and its power in the lives and the work of the early church and the disciples. So do you see that the sending of God's Spirit and the sending of the church, they go together. They're inseparable, like the death and resurrection. You know, just think about this. What is the primary evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ today? What's the primary evidence? Surely it's a church that is preaching the gospel of Christ across the world. What is the primary evidence today of the Spirit of God at work in the church? Surely it's this, a church preaching the gospel of Christ across the world. So what we're doing here today... This struck me this week in a way I never had before is a beautiful thing. Our meeting here today is a direct fulfilment of verse 47. What began in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is continuing here in Norwich and in all corners of the world. That is testimony to the truth of the risen Jesus Christ, is it not? You know, don't ever think that coming to church is a dull waste of time. On Sunday, some Sunday mornings, it can certainly feel like that. But this, this verse tells us that cannot be the case. Our meetings together are special because they testify to the truth of the gospel. But just as we conclude, I think there is a challenge here for us at Trinity. It's a simple challenge, but I think a real one. Are we, as a church, telling the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world? Are we, as a church, telling the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world? Is your voice, our voice, part of the church telling the transforming gospel of Jesus to the world? That is the primary purpose of the Spirit of God, to empower the church to testify to the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot claim 
to be filled with the Spirit, if we're not interested in the mission of the church, this church or the wider church, if telling others about Jesus is only a passing part-time interest, when we can summon the energy and the courage and have nothing better to do, well, it's a tragic thing. Will often uses a phrase, I've heard this a number of times, he says, we never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. How true that is. A church that does not have the gospel priority at the centre of all that is does, does is a church that is seeking to quench the spirit of God. That is the truth of this passage. The good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ should clearly unashamedly and very importantly repeatedly be at the centre of all that we do as a church that is the business of the kingdom of God and the spirit of God will empower us to do it let's make sure that we join in let's pray Lord God, we do thank you for the uh, wonders of this passage, the truth of the uh, risen Lord Jesus and the meaning of it, the depths of which we can never fully grasp. But we praise you for Jesus. And we ask that by your spirit you would encourage us, empower us, spur us on to be people who would testify to the truth of the risen Jesus Christ and live for him. In his name we pray. Amen.